yeah, like, you know, we, we all think that we're right about whatever we believe. Like every, literally everyone thinks that we're completely right. Um, and obviously we, we can't all be completely right because we, we think different things. Um, it's not impossible, but it is statistically improbable that I personally here in Minnesota in 2018 am the one who got it, you know, 100% right. <laughs> That was Bonnie Christian, and I talked to her today about her new book called A Flexible Faith, Rethinking What It Means to Follow Jesus Today. Uh, Bonnie's a theological and political writer with a ton of people following her and reading what she writes. She's written for The Week, Rare, Time, CNN, Relevant, Politico, The Hill, Renew, and The American Conservative. Uh, she lives with her husband and their animals in St. Paul, Minnesota, just across the river from me. And we had a great conversation. Uh, in this book, she tackles all kinds of different topics uh, that are typically uh, really, really argued <laughs> with great certainty from all sides of the Christian perspective. And I think what I appreciate about Bonnie is she brings a very wide lens and says there are, there is truth, but within that, there is a lot of different ways of seeing things. So I think you're going to like this, uh, this conversation. Uh, I, I was really so refreshed by it, especially in this polarized, politicized time. So enjoy Bonnie Christian and then go out and get her book, A Flexible Faith, Rethinking what it means to follow Jesus today. Uh, well, Bonnie, I mean, hello, greetings. We are neighbors, essentially, though maybe 30 miles <laughs> apart. Um, but we've never met in person. We're doing this via Skype. But welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, you're welcome. I, You know, I, um, anyone that has endorsements from... Uh, Dennis Edwards, Zach Hogue, Scott McKnight, uh, and the Ford by Greg Boyd um, is like immediately I was like, oh, I'm going to like this person. <laughs> I'm going to like this book. <laughs> um, and I did. And it's good. And it's really, really good and thoughtful. And I think really helpful and hopeful in this time right now that we find ourselves in, Bonnie, that to me at least feels like people are people are um, running to the extremes, you know, like people are saying, I'm going to double down on my certainty, I'm going to double down on my, um, you know, presupposition about what God is and what people are, and I'm just going to remain rooted in my established notion of what the world is, what God is. And so your book sort of gives us this, well, what if there's a different way to look at it um, versus the binary, um, you know, um, so a flexible faith, rethinking what it means to follow Jesus today. Um, my first question for you is when did you first, I love asking this question. When did, when did the <laughs> idea of this, I, of, of this book first float into your mind or heart? Yeah, it's been a, a while now. Um, I was working on a, a previous book project that, uh, came very close to getting some, some book contracts with various publishers, but never did. And, and it was a little bit more political and it's very much not like the political moment for that anymore. And so I had been working with, um, an agent who uh, is not my current agent, but was at the same agency and she's since left. And, and so we were sort of talking about like, you know, it doesn't really seem like this other project is going to happen. Um, and she said, you know, do you have any other ideas? And, at that point, I was in seminary, and so I wasn't really in a place to be like starting a new book project at that point. But I said, well, I sort of have this other idea, and this, I think, would have been in 2014, maybe maybe even, no, I think 2014. Um, and I said, I have this other idea that I, I've sort of just, it's like a, a paragraph-long pitch at that point. Um, and she was really enthusiastic about it. And then she ended up leaving the agency and it got passed along to, to my current agent. And he was really enthusiastic about it. And he basically said, like, I know that you can't do it at this moment while you're still in school. But when you get done and you're in a place where you can work on this, I would really love if you would put together a full proposal. And so eventually um, I was able to and I did. Wow. Was it hard for you 
to put it on hold when you finish seminary. Like, like, I mean, the way I work is like, if, if an idea is burning in there, it feels like it's, it either is going to get written or it will never get written. So like, how did you sit on that and, and still end Um, up writing it? Yes and no, it was difficult. I, I think part of, uh, the reason why it was maybe less difficult than it would have been is that um, for the final year of seminary, which was sort of the bulk of the time um, that I was waiting on this, I was working also on my my thesis. And that was something that I was really enthusiastic about as well. So, you know, it wasn't maybe um, the, the writing project that I 100% wanted to be doing, you know, because I, I would have liked to have been working on this, but it was something that I, I cared about a lot. And so um, a lot of my attention was focused on that. And that sort of um, made the waiting easier, I guess. Yeah. Well, okay. So what, um, where'd you go? To, where did you go to seminary? And like, what was the hope when you went to seminary? Like what, like, was there an outcome? Was there a, this is what I want to do. So I'm going to go to seminary or yeah. was it something different? Um, so I went to Bethel seminary here mm-hmm. in St. Paul. Well, technically up in Arden Hills, but yeah. close enough. Um, and my, my hope really, and I know you're not maybe supposed to say this, my hope was to get a degree, um, to have those letters behind my name, um, right. You know, working in, in theology. And I also write a lot about politics, especially foreign policy and theology and foreign policy are like really like old men, traditionally places. And so being, you know, a younger woman in those spaces, you you need credentials. And so not that I, you know, didn't enjoy seminary, didn't learn things. I, I absolutely did, but, um, yeah, I was, I was there to get a degree. Awesome. Um, okay. So you write and, um, for different publications, obviously you're publishing or you mm-hmm. just published this book. Um, okay. Let's, let's kind of get into the book. So, um, when you had the seed of an idea and then when it became like, oh my gosh, th- this is why I think people need to read this at this point in time. Uh, what was your answer to that question? Like, like if I'm going to spend two years writing a book, it's going to have to be um, because I believe people need something. What, like, how would you answer right. that? Yeah. Um, well, so I talk about this some in the, in the introduction, uh, which is just that I think in the United States and, and certainly elsewhere, but that's, you know, where I live and where I expect most of my readers will live. There's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like state of flux, I think, mm-hmm. in, for, in religion for people. Um, you know, there's increasingly these people, uh, increasing majority of the population, especially among younger people, millennials and younger are just have no religious affiliation at all. Maybe they, they consider themselves spiritual, but but there's no you know regular religious meetings or community or, or doctrine or anything like that. Um, and, and increasingly people are, are growing up in faith and, and leaving a, a shocking figure that I I think I must have heard before, but just came across again within the past week was that 14% of uh, churchgoers left their churches in 2016, many in connection to the election. Um, And so that's just like, that's enormous, like a huge cultural shift. Um, Like no matter where you, you, what you believe or or where you think these people should end up or whatever the case may be like that, that is a big thing happening in our time that doesn't happen in all times and places. Um, and so I really wanted to respond to, I mean, I think my book is, is worthwhile for people who are not in that like season of doubt or deconstruction or leaving their church or whatever the case may be. I think there's, there's value there too, in sort of exploring other branches of the faith. Um, but for those people who are leaving, especially, uh, I wanted to make like a, a readable, accessible thing to say like, hey, you can't stay where you've been. And I get that. And that, you know, that is what it is. And it's, you know, perhaps something you're grieving. It's not ideal, but it, it's not going to change. But like, did you know the church is, is way bigger than where you've been? And, and we can like explore some of those other things. And, and maybe there there is something that's closer to what you're already like inclined to to believe or what you're already maybe coming to believe from your own study of scripture or whatever and there's there's probably a community that you can that will share that belief with you i love that actually i love that because it's helpful you know it's not shaming someone for saying this doesn't work for me anymore i i, I can't go here anymore i can't keep 
having the same <laughs> conversations and doubts. Um, but, and you said the word bigger. And so I have a, so my, my fundamental like core belief is that whatever God is, whatever Christianity is when it's at its best, it's always expanding, right? Like you can't, mm. it's not contractive. It's not systematic, like boiling it down to the four most core principles where you can, it's actually moving, it's expanding. Um, is, is that like, how do you react to that? Is that, would you disagree with that? Would you agree with that? Is that part of what your book's about or is it something different? Yeah, um, I guess I, I don't know that I've thought about it in exactly those terms. Um, I, I do think that what you're mentioning gets at um, sort of the need for, uh, I guess you could call it like theological humility um, yeah. or, or even epistemological humility, you know, like how we, how confident are we of how we know what we know. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, you know, we, we all think that we're right about whatever we believe. Like, every literally everyone thinks that we're completely right. Um, and obviously, we, we can't all be completely right because right. we, we think different things. Um, it's not impossible, but it is statistically improbable that I personally, here in Minnesota in 2018, am the one who got it, you know, 100% right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah, so I, I think... Um, I think that that sense of of bigness or expansion is is definitely related to that that idea of um, remembering that as much as we're you know individually pursuing truth and God to the best of our abilities, um, it's it's probably not exactly what we think it is. Yeah. Well, I think that I mean, for me, that's that's helpful. That's hopeful. That's actually that brings me relief. Right. That, mm. that I don't have to be completely right, that I don't have to nail it down right now, that I don't have to uh, make sure that no matter I mean, if I don't get it totally right, then I may be in danger of whatever, uh, you know, uh, burning. <laughs> I mean, that's a little <laughs> intense, but burning hell, disappointing God, whatever. Whereas if there's this notion that, OK, um, I'm always going to be like if like if God is infinite, then there's always more to know, right? It doesn't mean God changes, mm -hmm. but, the, but it means probably my understanding of God will hopefully always be expanding, always be growing, always be changing, always be challenged, always be something different. So, um, so go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I, I agree. And I, I, you know, I think and hope that that's true for all of us. And, and part of what I wanted to do with a flexible faith was, you know, I think it, if you are in that space of, of, of questioning or deconstruction or whatever you want to call it, it can become easy to sort of just become complacent about that and be content to, to stay there. Yeah. Um, and to sort of just be like, I'm going to be like, my doubts are, are here with me forever. Yeah. Um, and not that, you know, you're going to ever reach a, a, a space of like, you never have any doubts again, but like there should be that pushing on, I think, to, to learning more, um, you know, and with the knowledge that it's never going to be complete and perfect, you know, in this, in this life as we are right now. But, but that hunger for the more that you're describing, I think is, um, important to pursue and to not just sink into, well, I guess, you know, I can't have very good faith anymore because I had some questions. <laughs> well, I love what you just said, because like how I translate that is, you know, if like, let's say you leave a certain type of um, belief system, maybe it's Baptist General Conference, or maybe it's something else, you know, mm -hmm. um, ELCA, whatever, and you say, oh, I, I just can't, I, I can't handle that. So now I'm going to camp in deconstruction and I'm just going to live in questions forever. Well, isn't that it's like, like that then become, becomes it's like, that's just the next Baptist General Conference or ELCA, <laughs> right? I mean, that like that becomes the very thing you left if you say, I'm going to stay here forever. And no one ever says that, right? But I think we think No, that, but like, it happens. Yeah. It definitely happens. So this idea that you were just saying of like a flexible faith says, we're going to be honest about our questions because they're, that's how we grow. Um, but we're going to keep moving. 
you know, like we're going to keep going. We're going to, we're going to move towards something um, versus stay in this unknown place. And I think for a while, you know, like some people may need that freedom to say, I don't believe anything right now. Awesome. For a season. You know, yeah. right? Great. But then that becomes its own belief system, right? That's mm -hmm. just, as, just as fundamentalist as whatever belief system that you left. <laughs> You know, um, because you're going to come up with a systematic theology that's going to undergird, right? Your um, the reason why you can live in this. I don't believe yeah. anything, right? Okay. Um, so I promise I'm not gonna, just going to go chapter by chapter and say what do you mean by <laughs> this. But there are so many, like there actually are kind of a lot of chapters and so many good topics. But I want to start where you started and this idea, because it, it relates to what we were just talking about. What does it mean to say that the Bible is God's word? Because some people may say, even to what we were just talking about, like, now hold on, like, there's a <laughs> limit to questioning because God's word is God's word. God's word is authority that it, God said it, it that's, what it's, that's what it is. So like, even if you have a bunch of questions, you can ask them, but the truth is still the truth and the Bible is still the Bible. So then you end up, you know, having to just go back to that. So what would you say about um, the Bible and it being God's word? Yeah, well, so I, I grew up very much in like an inerrancy context. So like in the original text, the, the Bible is just completely without errors of any kind. Like even when it's talking about, um, you know, what we would dub science or history um, as opposed to, you know, theology proper. Yeah. Um, and so today I would, I would say I'm, I believe the Bible is infallible, mm -hmm. um, which means that it, you know, it, it's trustworthy, it's true, it won't fail us in any matter of Christian faith or practice. Um, there, there was interesting, there's an interesting uh, debate on, on Twitter recently, and I hate Twitter, but I'm on Twitter. Um, <laughs> there was an interesting debate because um, I believe it was Union Seminary in New York had yeah. sent out a series of tweets in which they used inerrant and infallible as synonyms okay. as if they meant exactly the same thing. Um, and people were responding like, you know, we realized from your perspective, maybe these seem like very similar things, but if you've moved from one to the other, like the difference is huge. Yeah. Um, and so that, that recently brought this, this debate to mind for me as well. Um, and I sort of revisited it. Um, but yeah, so, so that's what I would, what I would say when I, when I, I'm asked what it means when I'm saying the Bible is God's word. Okay. Can I, can I just ask even a nuancey question about that? Would you mind? Like, sure. So I get what people mean when they say inerrant. I get, mm -hmm. I think I, cause I grew up the same way. I, I definitely mm -hmm. don't um, subscribe to that, but that means that, well, okay. What I believe the fundamental underlying belief in that is that for it to have authority, it mm -hmm. needs to not have error. If it has an error or a contradiction, then it must not be, then it can't be trusted, right? I mean, is that mm -hmm. how you understand inerrancy? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there may be, you know, somewhat more well, for qualified, sure. right. definitely, but, but like, yeah, basically, yeah. Like, and like, I, certainly in like the common, like the lay level understanding, if you go ask someone yeah. in a, inerrancy church to define it, you're going to get something very much like that. And that's the sort of thing that I was taught, especially in connection to um, the genesis, to creation. Yeah, yeah. The, I specifically remember being told by like a youth group leader that, you know, if we, if we don't sort of hold fast on like the literal six day creation, you know, within the last six to 10,000 years, then, you know, the whole Bible's false and you might as well just throw the whole thing out. <laughs> yeah, right. House of cards, right? Like, like if you pull yeah, the card out. Yeah, and so out, I was like, well, I, I don't want to throw the whole Bible out. So yeah, I guess I'm going to be on this, jump on this bandwagon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so how does infallibility uh, handle apparent contradictions? Like even in the gospel text, right? You read you know, Mark says that this detail happened and Matthew said that this detail happened and they're clearly not the same. What does infallibility say to that? Yeah. So those sorts of things are, are like a big problem for inerrancy, but they're not really for infallibility. Yeah. Um, infallibility would say like, you know, the sorts of details where you have these differences, um, they're, they're not core 
to the gospel. Typically, they don't even make a difference for like the like the immediate small story in which they happen. Yeah. Um, like the the point very frequently is the same regardless of which way the detail goes. Yeah. Uh, and and even it, even in the few cases where maybe it does substantially change the the point of a small story in the gospels. Um, it, it's never like a, a story that's going to make a major difference to our faith. Like it's not, we're not seeing, you know, big meaningful differences of like, did Jesus rise or not? Um, you know, w- was Jesus uh, preaching or not? Like it, it's, it's not like these big, um, these big issues that are, that are sort of core to, to who we are and what we believe and, and what is expected of us. Um, so certainly those are not things to be like brushed aside or ignored or, or handled dishonestly, but, but they're not sort of like this, um, challenge to the entire structure of your faith that they can be in the inerrancy framework. Right. And I mean, the way you write this, it, like, is very respectful actually to some of the other, um, you know, to, to inerrancy and clearly you don't, um, subscribe to that anymore, but the way you write about it is very respectful, um. I think so. It was my aim, at least. It, there, there are a few, um, you know, in every chapter, there's there's something I disagree with, but there are a few that it was particularly like I'd have to be constantly checking myself of like, okay, <laughs> would somebody who actually believes this write it this way? Well, I think I, I on one level, I really appreciated that sense of like, hey, you know, th- th- there are multiple. Well, and I'm going to get to this great phrase you have: faithful multiplicity. I want to I want to talk about that. Um, but what I like about your book in particular is this admission that there are a lot of ways to be a Christian, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, am I reading you right or wrong? When, when no, it's that? true. I mean, I don't think that that negates the fact that like there is a right answer to each of these questions. Um, like I do think that a single truth exists, but like we have, you know, billions of people over thousands of years who have been faithful Christians who have answered them different ways. And while certainly like that, that disagreement is not ideal, the reality is that it exists and it's within sort of, you know, the generally accepted bounds of orthodoxy and holding to any one of these views is not enough to say like, oh, you're not faithful or, oh, you're not, you don't really love Jesus. Right. So like, have you, and again, I I don't know that you've mentioned this in your book or not, but like, have you, have you looked at bounded set theology versus centered set theology? I don't mention it in the book, but I am familiar with the concept. Yeah. Yeah. So like, that's what I hear you saying is like, um, there is a truth, like there is a center to, to the, the like the, like picture it like a well that mm-hmm. this is the water that we drink from. This is the pure water. We don't drink from other water, but we can really drink from that water. And then some of us can go farther. Other, others of us can stay closer um, and disagree on infant baptism or, you know, any number of theological, uh, things. So like, what is the center? What is the well for you in terms of like orthodox? This actually is what it means. Um, like this, this isn't flexible. (laughs) Um, so I talk about this some in the introduction and the, as I mentioned there, like this is not original to me. This, this, I was introduced to this to, by, by Greg Boyd, and I, I actually don't know if it's original to him either. But um, but I would say the the center is like the person of Jesus, like not even just like our ideas, but like the actual like person. Um, and then I would say like very close to the center is what we could call dogma. Mm-hmm. And that's like just a super limited set of just very basic beliefs of, you know, what God is doing in relation to humanity, what, what, what the, what Christianity is. Um, and I use the, uh, the apostles creed as an example of like a pretty good encapsulation of dogma, like the things that any, any Christian kind of, um, like regardless of whether you're, you know, the most high church Catholic or like the most low church Pentecostal, 
even if you don't even like to say creeds, you can pretty much be on board with the content of the Apostles' Creed and agree like, yeah, this is this is basically the story of Christianity. Yeah. Um, and so those are the things that I would say are not really flexible. Um, but there is so little detail there and there are so there's so much disagreement and flexibility in like the way we explain what the stuff in the Apostles' Creed means, the way that we explain like um, what does it mean to follow Jesus and to be like pursuing a relationship with this person. Um, so there, there is a core, but I, I think it's smaller than many people suspect. For sure. Yeah. Probably smaller than any one of us like would even admit, right? <laughs> like, like, you know, like probably each of us would say, well, it's this, but it's also probably this and this. And then like, if we could magically hear Jesus actually, like he might say, well, okay, maybe your first answer was right, but maybe that, maybe that plus was not quite right. I think each of us <laughs> sort of has that sort of, sort of, um, anyway, that was my editorial response to that. I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not saying you, you, you think that, but, um, Okay, so I love um, I love even that perspective of we can understand um, God's word, and even when we see contradictions through the lens of um, there 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 is this sort of center that that we can come back to, and 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 we can we can trust that what the Bible says about following Jesus and about um, you know grace and salvation that is true. There's a whole lot of other things that aren't clear. Um, so I like, I like where you went with that. Um, not that it matters whether I liked it or not, for you, <laughs> but, but I, but I did truly like it. So, um, again, oh my gosh, 18 great chapters with, um, questions like, um, are Christians supposed to do miracles or, um, are Christians allowed to be rich? Can Christians be violent? Should Christians vote? Um, and so we can't get to all of them, but I do want to ask, like in light of, so we are recording this podcast on September 28th, the day after some crazy Supreme Court uh, hearings. Um, and how do you interact with what's happening right now with sort of um, the Supreme Court nomination, sexual allegations? Some people are saying, this is ridiculous, we should just push them through because none of these are proven. Other people are saying, oh my gosh, this is a lifelong um, appointment and it should be really be taken seriously. It should be delayed. Um, what is the, how does the Christian think about this, about this, um, this current moral dilemma that we're in right now that is playing center stage in the Me Too movement? Sure. Um, well, so I have to confess, I didn't watch the hearings. Yeah. Um, I will have to get all cut up on that tonight and tomorrow for my work. Um, but Thursday and Friday is my weekends. And so, yeah, I just didn't want to spend my weekend no, watching the Senate. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, but obviously I'm aware of, you know, sort of the broader story. I actually just wrote about this um, this past week for um, The Week, which is one of the, the outlets I work for. Um, and what I argued there was that, um, maybe one of the worst arguments that's come out in connection to the, the allegations against Kavanaugh, um, coming from his defenders has been, if he did it, it doesn't matter because it was a long time ago and he was young when it happened. Um, and this, I think, and to his credit, Kavanaugh himself is not my knowledge making this argument um yeah he's just completely denying but a lot of his defenders have made this like if he did it it doesn't matter because it was a long time ago and he was young argument um and so what i argued is that like this is this is like a, a terrible argument especially for christians to be making yeah. um because time does not like the passage of time and the fact that you were 17 <laughs> that does not make like then just go away. Right. Like there has to be a repentance still. And, and there's, you know, he's denying it. So of course there's no repentance. Um, and so, so that I think is, that's something like, so we can, we probably never know with a hundred percent certainty, right, right. If this right. happened or not. Um, but we can like for ourselves not be out here 
like excusing it. You know, if it did happen, we can't, we can't be, we cannot be out here like just saying, you know, if enough time passes, eh, who cares? Boys will be boys. Um, So on, on the, on, in terms of the, the national level, I don't know. I, I thought, I thought this through from a couple of different angles. Um, and it, because it is so difficult to, to, to say with complete certainty, right? Cause it's not like we have evidence. We don't have mm-hmm. video. Mm-hmm. We don't have, um, to say with complete certainty, if I were him, I would withdraw. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, um, I guess in a, in a way, because of that lack of the ability to be certain and the lack of ability to, to exert, you know, meaningful influence <laughs> over what happens in this situation, yeah. I've sort of been mostly focused on how are, are we responding ourselves, um, you know, in, in terms of, um, are, are we just reacting based on partisan impulses or are we listening to things fairly? Are we making excuses for, for sin because of time. Um, yeah. So I, I guess that's sort of been what I've paying, been paying attention to in regards to, you know, how, how a Christian responds to this. Yeah. And like, so like when you, when you wrote about, you know, should Christians vote should, should which essentially is should Christian be involved in the political arena the process, mm-hmm. the, you know, and some would argue like, um, Hey, like, maybe some Christians that voted for the current president, Donald Trump would say, Oh gosh, I didn't want to, but I voted for him for this very reason. So that, cause there was probably at least two Supreme court justices that are going to be nominated by this president. And right. it's a less of, you know, lesser of two evils. And I want to make sure, I, I think if I vote for this person, then some of my values are going to get represented from the Supreme court and you know but then there's another type of person that says like oh my lord the system is so sick that uh, there's no possibility that good would ever come out of that so how do you answer that question you know should christians vote and how does the christian think thoughtfully about um you know like the milieu that we're in right now yeah does that make sense is that that a clear question it does. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a big question. I, know. I would say a, a few things. Um, one is, so I'm, I'm a Mennonite. Um, and I, I'm also a libertarian. And so between the two of those, I have pretty, pretty low expectations of the government and, yeah. and pretty low expectations of it ever doing anything that I want it to do, like not invading the whole Middle East Um, so, um, so my, my viewpoint is that my personal viewpoint is that, um, politics is important and, you know, especially when it's, it's affecting people's lives in, in the life or death ways that it often does. Mm -hmm. Um, I do not think it is as important or at least it should not be as important as what like the church is doing. Um, in practice it often is, but it should not be, um, and so I don't think that there's like for the Christian an obligation, like a universal obligation to engage in politics. Right. Um, in some times and places, you may feel more of that, you know, you may feel more compelled by your conscience. But I, I don't think it's like an all the time, you know, it, it's part of our Christian duty. I wouldn't say that it's, you know, consistently that. Uh, now, the part of the reason that we're in the mess we're in I would say politically, um, and and I understand the Supreme Court argument, and I understand why that is compelling to people. Um, number one, I think they're placing too much faith in in the state to to sort of be like their hope um, and their source of security. Um, yeah, to sort of legislate morality, right? I mean, like anyway, go ahead, keep going. Yeah, no, I mean, even if you have nine Supreme Court justices who all believe exactly like you do. That's not, you know, that's not what brings justice to the world. That's right, not right. what, you know, keeps us secure and gives us hope. Um, but I think that, and this is the case among sort of like modern American evangelicalism, but I think it's it's the case um, more much more broadly than that, is that there's a tendency to combine 
um, two viewpoints on politics, and it's a very messy combination, um, but, but people do it. Um, and so I, I described them as transformationalism and dualism. Yeah. And transformationalism basically says, like, it's part of your Christian duty to, like, use the power of the state and use your political power to try to make the government and society as Christian as possible. Um, of course, you know, depending on your political and theological convictions, what you think that means in practice can vary widely. Um, and then dualism says, you know, the government and the church have very different responsibilities. And so you need to behave very differently in different contexts. And so like it's, you know, with other Christians, you should love your enemies, turn the other cheek, do the Sermon on the Mount. But in the government, you know, you got to kill your enemies, you got to do jail and you got to, um, you know, maybe you're even torturing people, whatever the case may be. But that's appropriate in the government context. And so these two viewpoints tend to get sort of weirdly combined um, so that you have people saying, um, you know, we needed to vote for Trump to make America a Christian nation again, to advance our Christian values. But then they'll immediately spin and say, but I voted for him even with his ethical failings because I'm not voting for a Sunday school teacher. And this is the dualism, yeah, like, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. He doesn't need to be Christian, <laughs> even though you're voting for him to make things more Christian. Yeah. Um, and this is just such a pernicious combination. And it's not it's not only evangelicals who think this way. It's very common, I think, in American politics. And people just fill sort of that basic framework with different beliefs. So it, it looks superficially different. Yeah. Okay, so Bonnie, so transformationalism, dualism, neither yeah. one of those felt real satisfying to me. Do you, do you mm -hmm. have a third option? <laughs> um, well, there's two more, one of which will be even less satisfying. That's triumphalism, which basically says like the, the government is already under God's will. Yeah. It doesn't really make sense in our context. It makes yeah. more sense if you're like a peasant in, yeah. you know, 13th century Feudalism. France. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The last one, and this is where I would say I fall is separationism, hmm. which basically like agrees with dualism that church and state do different things and, and different behaviors appropriate. And then it says, okay, so that means as a Christian, there's a lot of stuff you can't do for the government and can't do with the government and you need to not be involved in, in a lot of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's where I would fall. And of course the, the degree to which um, people would say, you know, there are things you can't do um, will vary, but um, you know, if they ever extend the draft to women, which I, hope they won't, I will register as a conscientious objector. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's your, I mean, I, so my last name is Weens. Uh, my people are Mennonite. Um, mm. My grandfather was a Mennonite pastor and, but I was never raised in that. Actually, my, my dad, mm. my, um, he, his dad was a Mennonite pastor and beautiful, beautiful pastor. I love this. I love my grandpa, but mm -hmm. my dad never resonated with the kind of Mennonite um, beliefs that that he was handed. So I was never raised that way, right? I was never mm -hmm. given those nonviolent and separatist um, precepts. Mm -hmm. But I, I, you know, now that I'm nearing fifty, it's like I, I, <laughs> like my, like some of my DNA is coming back to me, you know, like, um, and I would, I would never, like, I have a visceral reaction to. Um, Christians should try to get the government to be more Christian. That that feels mm. completely at odds with how the kingdom works. It feels like power mm -hmm. over. It feels like um, you know you're expecting something that isn't Christian by its very nature to be Christian. And that feels completely at odds. Um, and I think I'm attracted to at times um, what what like what you just explained this sort of separatism. Um, especially as it relates to nonviolence and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I fe also feel this, <laughs> you know, like, damn it, I'm going to absolutely vote in the midterms because I think it does something in me, whether I'm right or wrong, thinks that it matters, you know? Mm. Um, and it does matter. And I mean, yeah. I would say, you know, I mean, I, I write, this book is about theology, but most yeah. of the writing I do on a day-to-day -day basis is political. Mm -hmm. And so obviously, you know, I'm engaged with and I care about politics. Um, I don't know how many like Mennonite foreign policy writers you have out there. I can't imagine as <laughs> many. Not too many. Um, <laughs> you, are a, you are a unicorn right now, Bonnie. Yeah. You are absolutely a unicorn. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think I think a lot of what separatism is is about or separationism is about, it doesn't have to mean like, you know, you go full Amish and yeah. you're out there with no electricity. Right. I think a lot of it is about um, uh, priorities and allegiance and, you know, remembering that you're you're not yeah. a American first. Right. Um, but that's really it has some importance. Yeah. But in comparison, it's deeply unimportant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. See, yes. I say yes to that. I say yes. <laughs> I, I, I underscore that. Um, and it's also very complex. And I, and I, I would just like, like, as in, like you and I have just been talking as if we we're sitting in a, in a coffee shop, which generally I, I love, but I do want to pause and sort of say, read like listeners, there's a lot of ways to, to, to skin this cat. Right. And, and, and this isn't like how you deal with voting or the political process. There's Shane Claiborne who is beautiful and, and awesome and incredible. And then there's, you know, other people who have a totally different view. So, um, we, uh, I don't hear Bonnie, I don't hear you saying right way, wrong way. I like, you have to sort of figure out what is your personal convictions as it relates to following Jesus. And then you sort of have to move toward that, right? Yeah, I mean, there are there are ways of engaging in politics that I think are definitely less less Christ-like. <laughs> um, and I I would say that I, something that I would definitely you know sort of mark as the wrong way is coming to a political position, both in terms of like the content and sort of like your framework for engagement, and then announcing like this is the Christian politics. Um, and you know, if you don't agree with me. You're not really a Christian. And I see that so much these days on very much on both sides of the aisle. Like yeah. it is, a, I see it at least as much from like the, the progressive anti-Trump resistance as I see it from like the pro-Trump, he's going to save us all crowd. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I get the temptation. Like yeah. I do. Yeah. It's very, it's a very tempting. Um, but I think that that's something we have to, to yeah. not succumb to. Yeah. Gosh, so hard though, right? It's just like this <laughs> constant invitation to pursue. I don't know. Um, it is. And it is yeah. a little bit easier for me, I think, just in terms of, um, you know, if you don't have a real uh, clear political home mm -hmm. in our, you know, in our politics, um, it is a little bit easier, I think, to take that sort of outsider's perspective because it's like I'm never really seeing someone that I totally identify with and going like, yeah, my guy's going to get power now. Right. And so I think that makes it easier as well. Gosh. And then just it like it's ego, right? I mean, like now we're back in tribalism, ego, uh, my mm -hmm. side's going to win and that's going to give me validity for what I believe because I'm, you know, socialized to believe these certain things and when they get threatened then that means either I have to double down on what I previously believed or move into the dangerous and, and threatening waters of leaving what I believe and, and believe something else, which feels totally threatening, um, but yeah. can end up um, being exactly what you need to do. Okay. Yeah. I am not <laughs> close to the amount of questions I want to ask you because the, there's just so many good things in the book, but we are nearing the end. So <laughs> I'm going to give you an option. Bonnie, I mean, I am, okay. I'm an equal opportunity employer here. Um, <laughs> would you rather talk about, does God really torment people in hell forever? It's a solid one. Okay. That's a good one. Or can Christians be violent? So that's your second choice, okay. but there has to be three because when we have two choices only, then we get caught in binary, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so you have to have three okay. choices. So the third choice is, um, is, um, I had it and I lost it. Um, are gay relationships sinful? So oh, man. here are your um, options. Does God torment people in hell forever? Just light little topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, can Christians be violent? Light little topic. Or are gay relationships sinful? Or you can say pass. Give me another option. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with hell. I think. Awesome. Love it. Just because I feel like maybe those other two get more regular discussion, perhaps. Got it. I love it. Go for it. All right. Um, oh, do you want me to like go over the options, or oh, what do you well, think? Well, okay. So 
yeah, I guess it would be better if I asked a follow-up <laughs> question on that. So, um, I okay, confession, I didn't read this particular chapter. So that's okay. I know from my perspective that there are at least four different views on what happens in the afterlife. Um, what is your perspective on um, on is there one right view or is there some wiggle room in what we can believe about what happens in hell? Okay. So I did go over four in okay. this chapter. Um, one was the classical view, which is just like eternal conscious torment mm -hmm. with or without fire. The fire is not strictly necessary, right. but just conscious um, torment two, forever. Right. Two is annihilationism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, God sustains our existence. And if you're cut off from God forever, eventually you just sort of, after some just appropriate period of punishment, you just sort of cease to be. Yeah. Um, three is a purgatorial hell. So whether there's like a separate purgatory location or not, you, you know, undergo um, appropriate just punishment and, and you become a better and more heaven eligible person. And eventually you're not in hell anymore, perhaps. Um, and that one, I think, can has the possibility of ending um, for some people with annihilationism, right? Like maybe you're undergoing this punishment, you're not improving, eventually you cease to be. It also has the possibility of ending with like a sort of universalism where eventually everyone ends up in God's presence. Right. Um, yeah. And then the fourth one is the Eastern Orthodox view, which is a super crazy view, Um I say that not in a, in a bad way, um, but it's not spatial. Like there's not a separate location. It's just everybody comes into God's presence after death. And how you experience that presence depends on your orientation towards God. So if you, you know, are, are rightly oriented towards God, you experience his love and warmth and light. And if you're not, you experience burning, searing heat and pain. Mm -hmm. um, that one does strike me as a little strange just in terms of like, and I'm probably thinking about this too literally, but like, can you see the other people? Because mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like it'd be feel very heavenly or whatever if you yeah. can see the people who are in pain. Right. Anyway, right. so um, yeah, I don't know, especially in like the annihilationism or like the purgatorial territory. I don't think you even even maybe the Eastern Orthodox view. I don't think you have to. Like there's options for sort of combining and options for sort of saying like, you know, this seems most right. I can support this best from scripture. I also think there's something true and, and maybe right about this view. Um, that's sort of where I am. Like if I had to, you know, sort of plant my flag on one, I think I would go with annihilationism. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't know that the purgatorial aspect is, is not correct. I mean, like many people I've read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce and mm -hmm. it's, it's compelling. Yeah. Um, and, and likewise, like the Eastern Orthodox view, that idea of it being about um, your orientation toward God as opposed to God, like actively inflicting some punishment on you. It's about, you know, your own heart. I think that that gets at something very right and true. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is maybe even more than a lot of them, something that the Bible doesn't say yeah. that much. Yeah. Um, and right. by definition, we, we can't like go observe it. So, um, yeah, I, I sort of envision it as, as like, you know, the classical view of eternal, eternal conscious format, like that's sort of a complete package. Mm -hmm. But if you're not in that camp anymore, there's a lot more options. Yeah. Um, I feel like this could be a whole different podcast and maybe we need to do it. Like let's, let's do a podcast just on the four views of hell. And there's been books written mm. and um, there's some really good ones out right now. Um, so, okay. Now I feel like vamping a little bit and this is not, this is not, this is your <laughs> podcast, <laughs> but I would say like, I have come to a place um, that I utterly reject the classical view of eternal conscious torment on the grounds that it's, that, um, it's not moral. Like it's like, it's not a more, mm -hmm. like there is no, no matter. How, so here's, this is not helpful maybe for others other than if you've left Christianity because of this particular reason, I would say you can come back in <laughs> and not, <laughs> and not believe that on, on the following grounds. And, 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 and this is where I get it. Like, so mm -hmm. if, 
Orthodox Christianity essentially says that all people will inevitably sin, right? Like mm-hmm. because of Adam and Eve, the fall, that, that there's no choice in essentially we sin and we choose to sin, but the theology says that we all will, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's general Orthodox. So if that's true, that we, we really don't have a choice and that we will sin, then it is immoral to have the the punishment for that thing that we really don't have a choice over to be eternally consciously tormented, right? So that's that's my fundamental problem with that one. And and I would say secondarily, it it doesn't it, like it is not consistent with the teachings of Jesus as it relates to people who have messed up, who have you know, right? So. Um, and then thirdly, or tertiarily, <laughs> I'm such a nerd. I don't believe there's anything that any human being could do, no matter how horrific, right? That would, that the just godly response would be that you suffer consciously for an un, like an unending time. That, 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 that feels like God is a monster in that, in that, in that case. So. Yeah. And I mean, the, the question that people always raise, of course, is like, Oh, so you want Hitler to get off? And it's like, well, (laughs) no, I, 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 because there's this conflation, I think of, you know, if in some circles, at least, if you don't affirm eternal conscious torment, then, you know, maybe you don't care about justice. You don't, you don't believe in God's judgment. You, you want to, ignore God's wrath and just make him like a sweet old grandpa. Um, but these other options are not saying about. like there's right. no justice, like there's no punishment for, you know, grave evils that people do to each other. Um, they're just saying like, you know, eternally consciously tormenting someone who has, you know, no option to cease to be no option mm-hmm. to, to learn or grow from this. Like, why, why would you do that? Um, and you know, it's not like we're more, more loving than God to raise this question. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I, and for me, this question is so closely related to the destiny of the unevangelized, um, which I discuss in, I forget if it's the chapter before or after, but it's somewhere around there of, you know, the people who, who are never hear about Jesus. Um, it's, it's very closely linked. Yeah. Um, that's why I mean, and again, apologies for not reading that chapter, but I but I am now and I'm glad that you sort of lay out the four the four views because I think I I do think there are people who just have to reject Christianity if they feel like the only the only option is to believe that Hitler, even Hitler, that there's no other way of justice other than eternally consciously tormenting someone because it doesn't pass like like if hitler was your child right and he had parents um and they saw I him suppose he did <laughs> you know what i mean and no yeah no it's let's true. assume that they saw him do what he did and let's assume mm-hmm. that they were horrified right horrified but can you imagine them saying I think the right thing for my son would be to 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 be in conscious torment forever on, on on the basis of what he's done. Like that you can't imagine any parent saying that. I mean at the at the very at the very worst you would say I wish he would just die. Like I wish someone would yeah, kill him. Yeah, put put him out of his misery. Yep, yeah. Yep. I mean yeah. and that that feels just because then he stops doing what he's doing and he stops suffering. You know, clearly he's suffering. So I can buy annihilationism for sure. I can also buy purgatory actually leading to mm-hmm. universal redemption. I mean, I actually can, can, I can flirt with universal salvation if it has some element of purgatory where there's a conscious turning, you know, even yeah. after death, like, like there's a, like in, for me, that would, that would be, well, now there's a reason for whatever the separation from God is in purgatory or even in hell, like hell is a temporary place where you're faced with all the sin that you've done that you never reconciled with and all the rebellion against God that you've ever done. And now you see it. Now you see like it would be hell 
to actually see all the effects that your sin has done, right? That would be horrible. But, but then to be like, okay, I can, now I, I've, I've sort of learned what I need to learn and I've faced God and I've asked God for forgiveness. And now, now I can be, you know, redeemed. I mean, anyway. Go. Yeah, no. And I, I agree. Like, I, I don't think that I can make like a strong scriptural case for universalism. Yeah. But I don't think that it's definitively ruled out. Like, I, I sort of I hope it's true. Like, it's not what I'm gonna, you know, sort of take my stand at. But I, I, I hope so. Yeah. Um, and I and I think that a, a major piece of evidence for it. And I, I believe I mentioned this in that chapter is that, uh, you know, part of, part of what the, the work Christ's work of atonement does is he's, he's conquering death itself. And so that raises the question of why is death, if defeated, why is death the cutoff for reconciliation with God? Yeah. Like who, who yeah. makes that, like who, who set that as the boundary? Right. Right. Um, because if God doesn't want it to be, it doesn't have to be. So is your hesitation for like embracing universal redemption more about like, well, that sort of means that God's love is, is irresistible. And then at the end of the day, people don't have choice. Cause I mean, people have to have choice, like even yeah. after death, like it, it can't be that just every, like every single person inevitably will choose that because then it doesn't feel like choice. Like, is that the mm -hmm. philosophical? That's a, I mean, that's a big part of it, but I would say like an equally big part of it is people do deserve justice. Like, I mean, I've mentioned, I write about foreign policy, mm -hmm. like the, the things that are going on in Yemen right now. Oh yeah. That's not just a free pass. Oh, you're dead now. So you get to go hang out with God. Like, right, right, <laughs> there, right terrible, terrible things that happen in our world that go unpunished in this life. And I, I think that God would not be, you know, perfectly loving if he didn't deal with that in some way. Okay. So, um, and so given that, um, plus given that, you know, I, I think, I think like the, this sort of universalism that I could be persuaded to would have an annihilationist element of it, because yeah. I think that there are, maybe I would, Maybe I'm too pessimistic about this, but I think that there are some people who who would not want that reconciliation yeah. and God would, you know, allow them to, to cease to be. Yeah. And yeah. so um, I, I certainly think some sort of universalism is a possibility, but I'm not like confident of it. Yeah. Well, and I almost think um, if, you know, how can we like when we're talking about the afterlife and justice and God, like sort of how can we be much more than just like, I, I'm, I, I don't know, th this is the best I can do. Right. I mean, <laughs> I guess I think it's such a big thing. Um, but this is honestly where I get a little tripped up with Christian theology, even though I'm a Christian pastor and have been for 25 years. When we say, well, God has to do something about that justice. I mean, God has to, but, but then in the same, in the same breath, we say, well, Christ's death on the cross is sufficient. You know, like that's actually Christ's death on the cross and resurrection was wholly sufficient for salvation. Right. And, you know, but then we sort of say, well, and I'm not being flippant here. I'm, I'm, I, I swear mm -hmm. to you, I'm not. I, I'm asking an honest question. We seem to then add the the plus. Christ's death on the cross and resurrection is sufficient for justification. Plus, you're realizing that you're a terrible person and and a, and a sinner, <laughs> and some sort of turning, right? And I don't, mm -hmm. and I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily wrong. I'm just trying to point out, I think there is a little bit of a contradiction going on here that is hard to understand. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. Um, and what I would say is that there there has to be like like an acceptance of the gift that's being offered, right? And mm -hmm. I'm you know falling back on very Sunday school language here, but I think that that's that's right, that there has to be an, an acceptance of what's been offered. Um, and I also think that some of maybe sort of the the, infusion or messiness that you're identifying 
has to do with the way that we tend to talk about salvation as like this one-time event that occurs, whereas, of course, the New Testament talks about salvation in all three tenses. We have been saved, we are being saved, Mm. we will be saved. Um, And it's much more, much more directional. um, And, you know, like, what are you pointing your life toward? And so I think it, it, the, the way that we, we think of like only in the past tense, are you saved or are you not saved really contributes to, to the way that that gets confusing. You're so right. Thank you for bringing that up. That is so good. Um, gosh, so much more to talk about. Um, and we've been talking for over an hour. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, we have passed our hard deadline by one minute. <laughs> so, um, Bonnie Christian, A Flexible Faith, Rethinking What It Means to Follow Jesus Today. Uh, This came out in May, so you guys, you can get it on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, IndieBound, anywhere you buy books, you can get this book. I'm going to put it on the show notes, and you can find it at steveweens.com slash show notes. Just search for the podcast. If you're listening to this in 2018 or 20, you know, 26, and it's been years. (laughs) Um, just <laughs> assuming the internet still exists and I still exist, uh, oh, Lord. <laughs> just search a flexible faith and you can find a link to purchase Bonnie's amazing book. And I would say like, this is the kind of book that, you know, get together with your book club, do a discussion on it. If you're a small group leader at a church, this would be a great one to, you know, with no advanced reading is yeah. the crucial thing. Yeah, you, you can, can do, do it. it right? You can do a chapter in one sit down where nobody read anything in advance because nobody will read anything in advance. <laughs> That's so awesome. It's so true. It's so true. <laughs> um, so, but I would say definitely, um, you know, as you've heard, I mean, Bonnie's very thoughtful, um, very expansive. Um, and I think, again, we've, we've, or I've, I've said this, I experience you, Bonnie, as, rooted grounded like this is not a book that says oh anything goes or whatever it's it but it but it says let's let's talk about the fact that there can be a diversity of beliefs um while still holding on to this central truth about the life of jesus teaching jesus and i think that's very helpful in this in this day and age so um thank you so much how else can we get in contact with you if we want to if someone would say hey i want you to speak at my church or or come to my um book club in cottage grove um yeah you know. um so my website is is bonniechristian.com and my last name is spelled k-r-i-s-t-i-a-n um and the about tab there has a couple ways to get in contact with me including um email or if you want to find me on twitter or if you want to submit even like a like a brief question that you want answered sort of publicly on my blog, you can do that too. Um, so yeah, you can find me there, and and really you can just Google Bonnie Christian. There there was like a, a D list actress of the same name, um, but <laughs> I have taken over the Google search results, wow. so so you will find me pretty quickly that way. Or you can just check out Bonnie Christian, the D list actress, and just see see what you has can. happened. I mean, see what she. I believe she had, she also sometimes went by Bonnie Christian Squire. So just FYI, I guess I'm, I've never actually watched anything that she was in. I am going to put that on the show notes too. I'm going to put Bonnie Christian, the, <laughs> the D-list actress. You're going to, you're going to find out what she has done. Squire. Um, okay. Bonnie, this was fun. I sort of feel like, um, I really had the freedom to just sort of go there, which I hope felt like um, a real encouragement because that means that I see you as someone that's very thoughtful and that can handle the tough questions. Um, so, but well, I think, thank you. yeah, no. Well, and I hope um, many of the listeners of, of this podcast really are in that phase of deconstruction, but hoping for reconstruction. So I think, mm-hmm you know, you, you, you may get some emails and some, some hits on how to take it a step further. So if you're here in the, that Twin sounds C- wonderful. Oh yeah. Well, I hope if you're here in the twin cities, Bonnie lives in St. Paul, which, um, is the, is my fifth favorite suburb of Minneapolis actually. So <laughs> oh, <really> wow. <laughs> totally kidding. Um, <laughs> totally kidding. Do you know Micah Witham of, um, he's the pastor at Awaken community in St. Paul. Do you know? Awaken? I don't. 
Okay, so I so he loves St. Paul, but I always I absolutely make fun of St. Paul, even though I love it um, <laughs> in that way, because uh -huh. know, there is this beautiful, subtle St. Paul, Minneapolis, um, you know, sort of, I don't know, rivalry. So, yeah, I mean, we we almost I'll go to northeast Minneapolis, but yeah. we almost never cross the river. Like See, I would say maybe once a month and it has to be for like a good reason. Well, let's be honest. Minneapolis people are hipsters and and absolute, you know, sort of like shallow. Um, you know, we <laughs> we need bright lights. We need we need a lot of things. St. Paul people are like, oh, it's, oh, it's so. I mean, oh my gosh, yawn. I mean, we they are heart of the city. They are many times blue collar. Um, I love my city. I don't need to leave it. I love good food. Um, Minneapolis is stupid. And, um, you know, so there's probably really more of a, you know, respect that I have for St. Paul people, but I also have mm. to give, I also have to give lots and lots of grief. So I would make a Garrison Keillor reference if that weren't so awkward now. Uh, it is awkward, isn't it? I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you know, oh gosh. Well, Bonnie, thank you so much. Um, this really, this was fun for me. This was um, a good end to a crazy week um, that was filled with lots and lots of crazy. So um, this was a fun way to end my workday, um, talking to you about um, your book. Um, any last things you want to say or add? Anything that you hoped I would ask you that I didn't? No, I, I think we've covered it. Um, and yeah, people, people are very welcome to get in touch. Okay, check out bonniechristian.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N.com. And Bonnie, B-O-N-N-I-E. Or just go to the show notes and you'll get what you need. Okay, folks, we are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We're human and holy. And we're in it together. Grace and peace. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.